Have you ever had the opportunity to um, pull out an old toy set? Maybe it was an old truck or maybe an old game with soldiers and other things, and you pull them out and, and you start to look at them again through adult eyes, and at the same time, your child eyes come back and you can see and remember all the different things you did with those toys. Kind of look them over again. This morning we are looking over a passage that is familiar in ways, but I'm asking you to look at it anew, to pull out different parts and, and to look at them and marvel at what God has done. What a gift he has given us. I'm going to start with the first part of this story before we even read it. You know, there's this thing called the lectionary. Who's heard of the word lectionary before? I'm not going to ask you to answer what it is. Maybe you've heard it. Okay. It's a fancy term that's used for a three-year rotation of the scriptures. So over the course of three years, the lectionary hopes to cover the breadth of scripture. And so when we work through the year, as you're doing the lectionary, you're going to be in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and a number of different places. And then come Easter, everybody knows we're going to hear the Easter story. But in the lectionary, the question is whether you're going to hear the Easter story through Matthew, you're going to hear the Easter story through Mark, or you're going to hear it through Luke or John. Which is it going to be? The, each year, the lectionary has a different gospel writer to give that Easter story. Again, the purpose of the lectionary is over the course of three years that a congregation would journey through much of Scripture. There is one Sunday, though, in the year that the lectionary returns to the same passage, the one passage, over and over again, and it's this Sunday. This Sunday, instead of journeying through all different parts, this Sunday, in any of the three years of the lectionary, we deal with this one passage from John. That's the passage that many of us know as Doubting Thomas. It's this one passage that the people that put together the lectionary long ago realize there is something here that John is capturing that we need to return to every year. Now, here's the part we're going to pull out of the box. Here's that first part we're going to look at. At the end of the reading today, we're going to hear these words. Many things were written concerning Jesus Christ, of which all the books could not fill. But these things are written so that you may believe that he is the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in so believing in him, you may have life in him. So in other words, the passage we're about to read, John has recorded it for the single purpose that we might come to believe. 
And what is it he wants us to believe? He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that he is the Christ, the Son of God, we may have life in him. All right? Now, to believe that he is the Christ means this. We believe that he is the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew for saying the anointed one of God. To say the anointed one of God is to imagine, you know, they would put oil on people to anoint them, to say that they're special or set apart. But that oil is to be rubbed in. In other words, this Christ, this Messiah, this is the one who God is rubbing into our lives, making it one with us. This is the promised one. And this promised one is more than just somebody special that God's going to put. This is the very Son of God. And John wants us to know that if we can believe that this is the anointed one, the one that God promised, the very Son of God, that we can have a whole different life. And we'll read about that and learn about that in a moment. Let's pray that we can hear God's word now that I've given you a foretaste. Oh Lord, may you bless this time together. May you bless your word to us. May we be strengthened and encouraged by what we hear. May we be challenged. And may we be blessed. In Jesus' name. Amen. John writes in chapter 20, verse 19, and the, per, the people of the lectionary thought it worthy of us hearing this every year, these words. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, in other words, the day of resurrection, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. 
Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Life in his name begins with reality. Notice the passage, what happens. You have the disciples believing as Jesus appears to them, but Thomas isn't there. And then we get this statement about eight days later, and Thomas is now with them. What I love about this passage is its honesty, its rawness. As I said last week on Easter, if this was all to be made up, if the disciples were just doing some creative makeup story to get people to believe things, they would have crafted it far different than what they left to us. They were brutally honest about who they were and how they struggled so that we might understand and see ourselves. It says eight days later, which is a way of connecting Easter Sunday and the following Sunday. Now, I know some of you are saying eight. How's that work? I usually think of that as seven days later. That's because we're working in their time and in their culture in which they always count the day you're in as well. You know, kids sometimes do that, right? Until they learn the way we do it. But in this culture, you counted the day you were in as well. That's why if you've ever been confused, on the third day he rose again, and you're like, wait, he died on Friday, and he rises on Sunday. That's only two days later. No, it's on the third day because we're counting Friday, Saturday, Sunday in that culture. In the same way, the eighth day is saying to what we would normally say a week later, seven days later, and it's trying to bridge, it's trying to bring together last week, the great celebration, the excitement, the resurrection with reality. Reality. You know, there are two Sundays a year that most preachers don't want to preach. Or they might even take off and have somebody else fill in for them. You want to take a guess what those Sundays are? The Sunday after Christmas and the Sunday after Easter. Because traditionally throughout the United States, those are also the two lowest attended Sundays in the whole year. Think about that. The Sunday after the great celebrations is the Sunday of the lowest attendance. 
greatest attendance to lowest attendance. Because we're talking about great excitement and joy and then reality. And I love the way John presents to us what happened to them. The disciples are together. Jesus appears to them. And let's be clear about what their situation was. They had, been, they had heard from the women that he was raised, but they yet didn't quite get it. They didn't quite believe. So where are they? They are locked in a room. The doors are locked. Or really the proper translation is to say they're, they're fully secured. In other words, they're hiding. And the scripture is very clear. John tells you why they're hiding. They're hiding for fear of the Jews. They are themselves Jews. What they're saying is they're hiding from their own people because they've seen what was done to the one they followed. They're hiding out. The whole work, the whole effort, everything they've been doing for the last three years, it's all come to an end. And now they're just trying to save their skin. They're hiding out and Jesus appears to them. And it changes everything for them. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being so discouraged, so sad, and suddenly seeing the very one that you're sad and discouraged about being with them? What a disconnect. What an incredible change. And we'll say more about that in a moment. But what John wants us to hear now is eight days later, connecting that reality of the resurrection with, well, reality. With the one of the disciples that was not with them when they were all together in that locked room. Why wasn't he with them? Maybe it's better to hide singularly. Have you ever played hide and seek before? And if you caught, a few of you end up trying to hide in the same space, who are the first people to be found, right? Sometimes it's better just to hide solitary. But for whatever reason, they later connect with Thomas during the week. And I love it. They tell him, we have seen the Lord. How many of us would believe someone telling us that today? Even today, as professing members and followers of Jesus Christ, if someone said, I just met Jesus, how many of us are ready to say, cool, let's go? Or how many of us are ready to say, were you at a psych ward? Right? You know, John tells us that Thomas wasn't with them. And he also tells us Thomas's nickname, the twin. Probably because he was a twin and they had a few disciples that had the same name. You know, there were a few uh, Peters and Simon. You know, they've got some people, some same names. And so, you know, they get some nicknames and Thomas was called the twin. And it's probably because he had a twin. But John loves this. And as he records it to us, he records to us his nickname, not just because he wants to get details in there, but because it's so fitting. Because Thomas is our twin. Thomas is us. How many of us have wished 
that God would just tell us out loud that it's true. How many of us wish that God would just for a moment come to us and say, I'm here? How many of us wish you know, the moment quietly in our bedroom that we would just hear his voice plain as day, clear, or that he'd even appear to us? How much that would change us? How much we tell ourselves that if that would happen, we'd be all in. We're there. And yet the Israelites got to walk out of Egypt. They got to walk through on dry land in the parted Red Sea. And yet they still struggled. But there's Thomas, our twin, who knows exactly what we feel like. And when they come to him and say, I have seen the Lord, he says, I I don't want any part of this. Enough. It's not funny. I don't know what you think you all believe, but unless I put my fingers in those nail holes and my hand in that side, there's not a chance that I believe you. Thomas is speaking more about what our world is like than anything in his world and his culture. We live in a scientific culture in which proof, we depend on science. We have faith in science. We trust in science. We trust that if you do an experiment again and again and again, and it always does the same result, that it must be true. We wait for proofs. And that's where Thomas is. Thomas is our twin. Now, here's the fascinating thing. Between Easter and the eighth day, there they are again, locked in a room again. Was it locked because the disciples didn't believe? Were they already hedging their bets a little bit during the week? Or was it locked because now Thomas is with them and he insists that that door be locked, no matter what their faith is? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. All it tells us is that once again, the door is locked. And once again, Jesus appears among them. And again, he says, peace be with you. And then directly, he goes to Thomas. He goes to us. Doesn't chastise him. He doesn't say, what's wrong with you? He doesn't say, come on, get on the bus. Let's go. What's wrong with you? No, think about that. The Lord of the universe, the one who's just given his life, the one who has been raised, still has the patience to come to Thomas, to come to us. He doesn't say, how dare you say something like put your finger in my mouth? Really, you think you can do that? Who are you to touch me? He doesn't say that. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. That steadfast love is the same word that we use for mercy, the same word that we end up thinking of as grace. God's grace, God's mercy never ends. 
Why? Because it is who he is. It is a constant. And Jesus stands before Thomas and he says, come here. Put your fingers in my hands. Put your hand in my side. And before you think about, oh, that is just gross. I don't know if I could do that. Before you think of it as Jesus just calling Thomas's bluff, think about what he's saying. He's saying, I'm here. Is this what you need? I'm here. And what's fascinating to me, and maybe you caught it as well, we're not told whether Thomas ever touches or whether he does. That reality, that fact is not necessary to what John wants us to hear. Whether he did or did not touch, not part of the story. What's part is that Thomas then says, my Lord and my God. But what's fascinating, what's absolutely fascinating is what Jesus says in response. He says, do you believe because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. That's us. That's us 2,000 years later who don't have that moment of Jesus appearing in the locked room with all the disciples. We're not getting to sit in the shadows and see it happen. We, We don't get to be there when Thomas suddenly is with Jesus. Instead, Jesus speaks not only into that moment, but he speaks into the future, into our reality, and John records it for us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Blessed. What do we mean by blessing? Throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, is this discussion of blessing. It's put as blessed or curses. Life good, life bad. The Psalms are all about this overall struggle. It begins Psalm 1. Blessed is the one. Is how it starts. The one who doesn't sit among scoffers or cheaters or others, but rather the one who stays with the Lord, stays with the the word of the Lord, the law of God. It's like a tree planted by streams of water. Not so the wicked. They're they're different, so they've got a different end. When the people first come into Israel and and they they start to take over the land and, and they meet in this place where they're to sit on two different mountains, a mountain of blessing and a mountain of curses, and, and they're reminded to what it is to follow God, they'll be blessed. And if they don't, they'll be cursed. They'll lose the land. Over and over again, there's a struggle begin being blessed or being cursed. Find people doing that all the time nowadays. I do this, I, I'm good so that I, God treats me well, and I try not to do bad so God doesn't treat me poorly. But Jesus says, Blessed 
In other words, the favor of God is upon the one who believes and yet has not seen. Blessed is the one who has not seen and yet comes to believe. Remember, we start out, John said, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in him. To be blessed is to believe that he is the Christ even if we haven't seen that reality. And to be blessed, then, is to have life in him. What does life in him look like? Remember, we pulled out the first part of the toy. We said, we looked at this passage, and we said, wow, this is written so that we might believe. And, and now we've been talking about that part about Thomas and his struggle to believe and, and shifted to those of us who are believing without seeing that we're blessed. So what does that blessed life look like? Let's go back to the first part of the story, that first day, the day of resurrection, when Jesus appears to them, the disciples minus Thomas, he appears to them in the room. Even though the doors are locked, he appears. Three things for us to see that new life in Christ. First, he says, peace be with you. Now, in many ways, you can look up. That was a common greeting in that time. Peace be with you. It's the same as when we say to someone, hi, how are you? Right? Do you ever say that? Hi, how are you? Remember my wife telling me, I can't believe it. When she started going to Hope, everybody says, hi, how are you? It feels so fake. Because out east, they didn't say that to one another. Hi, how are you? But... She's on to something because every now and then we're struck when someone tells us how they are. Oh, it's been a really rough day. And, so, and you walk, hi, how are you? Oh, it's been a really, uh, oh, uh, uh, we, we don't know what to do. Didn't you know that was just hello? And so peace be with you. Jesus is just saying, hi. No. It's more than the greeting. He's taking their reality, their greeting, what they know. Hi, how are you? He's taking what they know, and he really means it. They are there locked in a room. They're fear of their own people. Life has come crashing in on them. They left their jobs. They left all sorts of parts of life to follow this guy, and it came to a complete end. And he comes in, and he says to them, Peace be with you. And it's not just any peace. It's the shalom that God can give. The shalom that can fill our hearts in the midst of the deepest and darkest despair. When we're in the pit, when we're dealing with life that's handed us such awful situations we can't even imagine how we're going to endure, Christ is there to say, peace be with you. And it's his peace, his shalom that which can lift our hearts even in the darkest of moments. In Psalm 139, it talks about us being fearfully and wonderfully made. And it speaks about how we can't go anywhere. We can't go to the far ends of the earth. We can't go to the depths of despair that God is not with us. Jesus comes and stands among them and stands among us and says, peace be with you. 
What does it mean to have life in him, to believe in him as the Christ and the Son of God? It means that we can have a peace that passes all understanding in the midst of the most difficult and darkest moments of life. And I don't know about you, but as a frozen, chosen, reformed, and we don't say much of anything, I think that deserves an amen. The darkest moments, peace be with you. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, peace be with you. As the Father sends me, so I send you. He's giving them instructions for life. He's giving us instructions for life. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. How did the Father send him? The Father sent his son in absolute love for a broken world, a world that has turned from him, a world that is running from him, but it's in absolute love that the Father has sent the Son into the world. And now that same Son, who's been raised from the dead, who's offering us his peace, is now saying to us, look, as God sent me in love, I'm now sending you in love. Flashback to just Monday, Thursday. What is the new commandment that he gives us? That we should love one another just as he loved us. Not only does he give us his peace, but he gives us a mission to love others. We grow up in a world in which we respond to people in kind. They treat us poorly, we treat them poorly. They treat us nasty, we don't have any part of them. I'm just like you. I struggle to forgive. I had a rough car rental the other day. I don't know if I want to give them a second chance. Right? As the Father sends me, so I send you. That's what life in Christ looks like. Being sent in the love of the Father and extending that love to people who don't deserve it because it's about the steadfast love of the Lord enduring forever, the mercy, the grace of God. I don't know if I can do that, we say to ourselves. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, there's this one circumstance. I don't think that Jesus is asking me to stand up to that. I don't know if I can do that. The third thing he does in this moment before the disciples is strange. It's odd. And we read it, and we just kind of read over it because it seems weird. He breathes on them. He breathes on them. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I sit there and think about, is my breath good? You know, just, he breathes on them. That just seems odd. We read over it, but it makes all the sense in the world. These are written so that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in him. What does life in him look like? Well, when he breathes on you, flashes us back to the very moment of creation when God creates Adam out of the dust of the earth. And then what he does? He breathes life into the Adam, the dirt creature. He breathes life into him. God is the one who gives us life. And that same word for that breath is ruach, it's a Hebrew word, ruach. It's for breath, but that word also is the Spirit of God. He breathes on them. 
breathes life into the creation. Fast forward to Ezekiel the prophet. And Israel and Judah, they've, they've wandered away from God and they're, they're, they're being punished. And there seems to be no hope. But God pulls out the prophet Ezekiel and he takes them, takes them to this valley, this valley full of dry bones. And he asks the prophet Ezekiel a question. Can these bones live? What would you have answered? The prophet's been with God enough to know, uh, not for me to answer. Only you know, God, there's a safe answer. (laughs) Can these bones live? Only you know, God. That's a safe answer. But it's where we get the, you know, thigh bones connected to the hip bone. You know, that, because... What God next says to Ezekiel is, prophesy to the bones. Speak to the bones. And he does. And the bones start rattling and they start connecting and they they start becoming a frame and, and sinew and flesh come on the bones. But there's not yet life. So the next direction that God gives the prophet Ezekiel is he says, Prophesy to the breath. Speak to the breath. Speak of the breath. And he does. And the breath comes in. And there's life. <gasps> life again. And it's a promise that, that even in the midst of the destruction and the punishment that Israel will be restored and there'll be life again. So there is this strong imagery of breath. God's breath. God's life. God's spirit coming into God's people. And so when Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he says, peace be with you, as the Father sends me, so I'm sending you. The next thing he does is he breathes on them because he breathes new life into us. To believe without seeing is to be blessed and to believe that he is the Son of God, the Christ, is to have new life breathed into us that in the midst of sorrow and pain, we can still have the peace of God. That doesn't mean we won't hurt or be in pain, but we will still have the peace of God. And we have a mission to share that love with everyone. And even if we think we can't do it in our own strength, we have a God who has given us the life and the breath to do so. And in all of this, we are incredibly blessed to believe. Let's pray. Almighty God, may you bless us. May we see in our twin Thomas the call to believe in you. Even as we struggle with wanting proofs, help us, Lord, to make this step of faith to trust in you and to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and that in you God has given us the greatest love of all. Help us, almighty God, to share this love with the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and forevermore. Amen.